Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, we're talking to former NCVO boss Sir Stuart Etherington about what the death of the Queen means for charities and voluntary sector organisations. But of course, you might remember last week, we started the podcast by welcoming our brave new leader. And I was referring to Liz Truss, um, who had become the new Prime Minister that week. But by Thursday, we record on a Wednesday, all of that had taken on a rather different meaning. And we learned that the Queen had died in Balmoral, her Scottish residence, after more than 70 years on the throne. And on her death, of course, the country gets a new king, once Prince Charles and now King Charles III. And it's a change that has repercussions for everything. Parliament got called back. We saw a lot of very moving speeches from parliamentarians um, shortly after the news broke. Ten days of national mourning, which we're now into. A state funeral, which will be taking place on Monday. And it touches everyone, really. Um, Polls have found that 80% of the public followed the news of the Queen's death on television. And that three quarters of people said that they were personally upset or very upset at the news that the monarch had passed away. And of course, it does have an impact on charities. We ran a story swiftly after the death of the Queen was announced about charities paying tribute to her. And of course, there have been hundreds and hundreds of people doing just that. Uh, There's been an outpouring, really, of grief and affection um, after Her Majesty died. The British Red Cross thanked her for her support and even hinted at personal donations the RNLI talked about unwavering commitment to saving lives at sea. And there were just dozens and dozens and dozens more uh, that we haven't got time to go into now. And of course, at times when the country comes together, charities have a crucial role. It's been the case in the past and it's going to be the case again um, during the period where uh, the Queen is lying in rest, the 10 days of mourning that we're now in. We know that charities like the Scouts and the Salvation Army, many others, have a role in, for example, helping steward the crowds who are attending the Queen in her last days now, um, and also supporting people who come to pay respects, and there'll be charity presence in doing all of that. It also comes with a bit of a cost for the charity sector, we should be honest about that. Um, Just this week, um, I was writing a story about Macmillan Cancer Support, um, incredible charity that does brilliant things, and they decided that it just wasn't the right time to go ahead with some of their fundraising events, which are worth millions of pounds to that charity. And they said, look, this is a, a patron of ours, the country is, is sort of coming to terms with that. And we don't think it's the right time to do it. So charities are having to make really difficult decisions. Um, the Queen had about 600 patronages, um, including about 200 mostly large charities um, that she helped sort of support and uh, give publicity to on a public stage and this sort of thing. And there's always that debate about the value that charities actually get out of having a royal patron. I know, Andy, you've had a a little bit of a look into this. Yeah, I mean, there are benefits. The Charities Aid Foundation did some polling that found that 15% of the public were more likely to give to a charity if it was associated with the Queen. But then the firm Giving Evidence also found that charities with royal patronages didn't report higher income off the back of it, but it did have a positive impact on things like staff morale and reputation and things like that. So it's a... It's one of those things that's difficult to evaluate. And on the intangible stuff, it's easy to believe, isn't it? I mean, you, you've you heard so many stories in the past week and, and, and longer about the impact it had for people to meet the Queen. It's it's exciting for the overwhelming majority of British people. Meeting the monarch is quite a moment. And I can well understand why working for a charity where they've got that association, you know, the, the picture on the website, the name on the masthead, all those things 
do count for something. Um, and I think it was really interesting that you you do get that sense that even for the staff at charities, if not for anybody else, mm. it's something that makes them that little bit prouder of where they work. Um, and that speaks to the kind of whole institution, I think, a little bit. Talk of institutions, I don't think we should sort of uh, duck some of the harder questions as well. We need to think about what comes next for, as he is now, King Charles mm. III. In his speech on Friday, uh, the King's already said that he's going to step away from some of the work that he has done traditionally with charities, yep. those that he's closely associated with. But we have to remember that at some point there is going to be a series of regulatory and police reports into alleged wrongdoing of those charities. And regular readers of Third Sector and listeners mm. to this podcast will know that we've, we've looked at that in quite some detail in the past. Um, and those are pretty unprecedented constitutional waters and indeed some constitutional experts have already said the best thing for Charles to do is to step away from his charities as quickly as possible because there are some of those questions swirling around them. Indeed we are in unprecedented times for sure and as I like to say there has certainly been an unprecedented rise in the use of the word unprecedented yeah, over if the you, last couple of years. If, if you like me write for Andy and then you have to kind of submit everything you do to his red pen the word unprecedented is not allowed into print on a particularly regular basis. No but shall we get on with the main beef of the episode? Absolutely let's get on to Stuart Etherington. Sir Stuart Etherington spent 25 years as Chief Executive of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations and before that was Chief Executive of a charity with royalty in the name in the form of the RNID. He was also Chair of the Patrons Fund, a charity set up for the Queen's 90th birthday celebrations in 2016. Sir Stuart, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. I wonder if you could just start with maybe some personal reflections on the Queen and the charity uh, and the charity legacy that she leaves and whether you have any sort of personal anecdotes of interactions with her over the years. Yeah, I mean, the Queen at the high point was a patron of over 600 different charities. And, and what struck me when we did the work on the patrons fund that sort of came out of the patrons lunch was just how varied they were. I mean, you know, it was anything from a very large household name charity to uh, a sort of very small, say, Sandringham-based uh, charity. So it was quite wide. In terms of personal anecdotes, I mean, one thing that always struck me about Her Majesty when uh, when we were engaged with her was uh, her stamina. I mean, it was just incredible. When we did the patrons' lunch, uh, afterwards there was a, a thank you for the charities that had been involved and the, and the people that had provided a lot of services for free. And I, she worked a room for over two hours, and she was 90. And, and uh, when, well, I couldn't work a room when, when I'm 67. But, um, and, and also the same thing with the um, – when uh, when we uh, asked the Queen, who was the patron of NCVO, uh, whether she would uh, uh, honour us with a, a, a reception for our centenary, which took place at Windsor, where we were able to invite quite a lot of small organisations, a lot of volunteers who wouldn't normally meet the monarch. Again, she worked that room and shook hands with everybody um, and uh, was uh, um, was just uh, fantastic with people, um, and just she would just put the work in. The funniest thing that happened there actually was how you leave a royal reception. Um, uh, the Queen had gone, and Princess Anne was also there, and she had gone. Uh, and what you realise is uh, you're being 
uh, slowly corralled out of the room <laughs> by uh, by people who are collecting glasses but are forming a sort of line. And you're sort of yeah, right. out of the room. And before you know it's over, you've left. <laughs> but but that was the that was the funniest the funniest memory. The other memory I had actually on the day of the lunch uh, was I was down the Admiralty. I was gave, giving that sort of speech, uh, which is a bit a bit harrowing in front of ten people. And, and, Do you want uh, to just explain to the listeners what the patrons' lunch was? In yeah, it was a, it, it was a celebration of her work with her charities on her 90th birthday, and it was in the Mall, and lots of charities came. I think 80% of the charities that she was patron of came, and a lot of them brought volunteers. And we were having speeches down the end. And I was waiting down the Admiralty Arch end with, with uh, uh, Harry uh, uh, and with William and with Catherine, uh, ready to give these speeches, and uh, they left. They were, they were driving down in an open top, which was uh, not sure because it had rained all morning and being british of course we didn't run out of pims we ran out of tea as the queen's car was going down she was with the duke of edinburgh then and he was very frustrated the car was going too slow so at a certain point he banged on the roof of the car to get the driver to go past her. but it, i mean she was just astonishing and you've uh, you've had this sort of overview as andy's mentioned sort of uh, that role at ncvo gives you a sort of a helicopter view of the sector really for for more than two decades yeah You'll have seen so much yeah. of, of what the Queen did with charities. What what were the benefits that the charities got out of it, do you think? What were the benefits of that association for them? It's a really interesting question. And we we did after we did the patrons' lunch and a patrons fund and we and we made money, we made about eight hundred thousand, gave it away uh, on a pro uh, on a basically a pro rata basis to to her charities. Uh, I was determined as a lot of charities, royal charities that sort of continue existing when they haven't got much resource. And I was determined that we would distribute the money and close it within a year, which we did. Uh, but the other interesting thing that we did is there'd been very, very, very little analysis. There's been lots of speculative stuff about the role of patrons, royal patrons, but very, very little analysis. So we thought this was an opportunity to ask the charities on, on the basis of the fact that they'd been involved in this event, how they viewed royal patronage and what they thought it was about. And it's quite interesting because a lot of people think it's about money and you know increasing your fundraising. Um, well, to a certain extent, that's true. Um, and there are things that link with that, like reputation. Uh, but there were a number of other reasons that people cited, which I think are equally important. So you can't really monetize patronage in in a in a simplistic way. It's about you know some people felt that you know if you if it was royal, it implied higher standards and a higher level of integrity. Um, some felt that. Um, it was particularly important. I think some people felt that there was a shared identity, uh, and that was particularly true where the Queen was very, very interested in the subject matter of, of the charity. Um, it was attractive to donors, but if you think about it, the, the other great resource that the charitable sector has, uh, which isn't available to hardly anybody else, maybe the public sector a bit, is volunteers. And uh, to be recognised by by the Queen, to be, I mean, in a sense, she is the greatest volunteer that we have. <laughs> um, and uh, people love that. And, and recognition and just being there uh, was important. Um, 
And there were some interesting there were some interesting collaborations between the Royal Charities. I, one of the one of the findings of that report was that there should be more collaborations between charities of which she was patron. The greatest one I saw as a result of this was that the MCC paired up with the Royal School of Dance. Right. Now, it's not an obvious <laughs> connection. The Marylebone <laughs> Cricket Club. Yeah, exactly. And what it was was the MCC did quite a lot in the community with younger people. Um, and they decided, they, 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 they linked up because they wanted to increase uh, younger people's engagement with dance. And so off they went. And uh, there were other collaborations. But I think I think you could do more of that, more, more in a sense, making the patronages more cohesive. Yeah, and you touched on that question of Royal Association leading to more funding, but it's interesting to frame it in a in a broader sort of context of it's not just about funding, because I know there have been reports giving evidence to the report a couple of years ago about the sort of value of Royal patronages, and they were rather sceptical about how much sort of monetary value Royals add. But there's interesting to consider the the wider aspects of status and reputation by having a, a royal as as your um, as your patron i think that's absolutely true and I, th- I think the queen in particular i think provided a sort of a, a reputational uh, in- endorsement almost of the charitable activity and people felt i think that if they were engaged that was that was a good thing and where do you think these royal patronages that were held by the queen might now go i mean could they be given to the new king be spread around the other royals or even discontinued what's your view on that i i think it will vary from charity to charity i think um what's quite clear uh, I remember listening to uh, uh, when the King was Prince of Wales a few years ago. He was asked whether he would continue to drive these causes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, to which his response was, "Do you think I'm mad?" Uh, <laughs> and, and clearly, he's going to change. He's already signalling that that sort of change. Um, and I'd, it's interesting. His approach was slightly different to the uh, uh the queen's approach the queen's tended to be a, a more traditional patronage view uh, in some ways very similar to princess anne what the king did when he was prince of wales was he tended to identify a cause which he was passionate about and then he would construct a charity to promote that cause so you had quite a lot of charities being created around the environment around architecture around young people where he was passionate about them um about their engagement with society and and so that was the thing so i think he will continue with some traditional patronages i think what remains to be seen is what happens to the charities that he really established um are they going to pass the, i mean most of them had prince of wales stamped on them so are they going to be picked up by the new prince of wales uh, the former Duke of Cambridge. Uh, and I think probably well, that remains to be seen, I think. Uh, I think you'll pick up some, and I think the king will continue with some patronages which are traditional accrued. But the, but both both the Duke of Edinburgh and the Queen were were sort of passing over quite a lot of their patronages as they, as they got older. The Duke of Edinburgh, uh, certainly when he passed at uh, the age of 90. 
1995 um, did, and I think the Queen was doing that as well. So a lot of them have been passed over to others. But if the if it's true that the the new king wants to sort of slim down the working monarch, uh, the working royal family. Then I think that does uh, raise an issue about whether or not some patronageism will be lost. But I'm sure that will be thought thought through, um, and I think the king will stick with some of his more traditional patronages. But I don't think he'll be involved in creating new charities around issues because I think that was the style he adopted as Prince of Wales. Yes, and he very much referenced that in the speech that he gave on Friday, I think, wasn't it, when he said that, you know, he realises that his work will have to change in his new role and the work that he's established through his charities will have to continue in the hands of others, I think. was the Yes, that's right. And obviously there'll be conversations going on amongst uh, the working roles about who takes on what and exactly exactly how they do that um and this week obviously is also a big week for charities um there are volunteers as you've also mentioned sort of and for part of the mourning period and the lying in rest we already know that charities are involved in that how do you see the sector getting involved this week um, what, what do you think they'll add value to well, I think some will be directly involved. It's it's already clear that the Scouts uh, and obviously uh, the Red Cross, uh, St John's Ambulance, uh, Salvation Army will be directly will be directly involved. Um, I think the interesting one also is is the Samaritans are gearing up. Uh, and I think that's an interesting response from the charitable sector because it's recognising that when somebody as prominent as as uh, the Queen dies, people are going to reflect on their own experiences of death and uh, their own... I mean, she was the nation's grandmother and people will be thinking... Uh, they'll transpose this, I think, into reflections of their own... Well, the reflections of, of their own relatives who may have died, but also inevitably reflections of their own mortality. I think it is a, it's a very odd experience in that sense. And, and I think people will turn to, some people, some people will turn to organisations like Samaritans. So I think it was interesting that they were gearing up. Others, are, So I think they're those that are directly involved and they'll have a very specific role in relation to uh, what's occurring. Um, I think others will be probably replanning events, uh, looking at their social media, ensure that they don't do anything which might be offensive um, and and replanning and repurposing events uh, to avoid the actual uh, day of the funeral. And what do you feel will be the the kind of the toughest bit of the week for charities um, over the the coming days? You know, there's obviously a lot of emotions flying around and 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 just a lot of activity. Um, are there sort of any sort of pitfalls or difficult areas that you foresee for voluntary social organisations? What happens in communities is going to be quite important. And, uh, you know, we've got, I mean, charities have responded incredibly well over, you know, what's been a very difficult period for the country. I mean, look at the pandemic, uh, the way in which they engaged almost at street level was astonishing. Um, and I think that they will also respond to the cost of living crisis. And this is just an additional aspect it seems to me you know allowing people to come together this has not been a sort of atomized experience this has been an experience where people have wanted to come together in order to 
show not, not just share grief but also show their respect uh, and i think charities that's going to be difficult for for people and uh, but i think charities are extremely well placed to assist that not not only at a sort of uh, operational level as the charities that i've just mentioned will do uh, but also i think at a, at a very localized level bringing people together enabling that to happen um and one of the big decisions you've slightly touched on there that charities face is what to go ahead with and what not there's a national mourning period, but but there there aren't hard and fast rules really about how civil society is going to respond. And you know, I've both this week looked at stories about charities, in some cases that have been willing to forego millions of pounds in fundraising events, saying, "Look, we just don't think it's the right time." Um, would you have any kind of advice almost for charities as they make those difficult decisions? Yeah, I think it's for each individual charity to make those decisions, and it will depend on on how they view the situation. This has been, I think, I mean, I wasn't around in 1952 when George VI died, but I think <laughs> things have changed. And I think in 19, I, I suspect that in 1952, the whole place ground to a halt uh, during the period of mourning and nothing happened. It was a very formalised period of mourning. If you look at any of the any of the uh, uh, films that were made around that time of what was happening, documentaries, it was a very formal. This isn't so formal. We've become less of a formal country in that, in that way. We still uh, respect uh, uh, the monarchy, I think, in the main. Uh, I think where there's dissent, that should be acknowledged. But there isn't a great deal of that. Most of it is, is honouring. Uh, the monarch, who was a p- astonishing lady, um, and but so I think we're less differential. So my advice would be: think about. The, the, I don't think the Queen would have wanted major, major, except perhaps on the day of the funeral, as it were. But but uh, major events that were going to bring uh, resources to the to to people who were perhaps most disadvantaged should stop. So I think you've got to weigh it in the balance, really. Um, and and I think there are going to be certain days where people should not do anything. And in particularly, I think, on the, on the day of the funeral, which will be, the I think, the real mark of this and the lying in state. But I think apart from that, I think let's, let's get back to some sense of uh, normality. It's, I think it's what the Queen would have wanted. Mm. Sir Stuart Etherington. We're really grateful for your time. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Each week, we bring you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. And even at this time of... Uh, morning mm. for the country. I know, Andy, that you've noticed some uh, nice ideas knocking around about how some of the tributes to the Queen could be used to help the charity sector. What have you learned? Yeah, we're still very much on the subject of the Queen and I'm sure that many of our listeners will know of the association with the Queen and Paddington Bear mm-hmm. following the uh, little sketch that they both participated in that seems to be much loved around the uh, Platinum Jubilee. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I will say I watched that when it sort of flicked up on my Twitter feed the other day and it did make me cry. I watched mm-hmm. it and it's just a single tear rolled down my cheek. I don't mind saying um, it was an extraordinary moment. But... Because the public have taken this connection to heart, they have been leaving Paddington Bear teddies 
in places like Green Park where there are all these mountains of flowers and other tributes that are being left for the Queen. And uh, they are kind of mounting to such an extent that the Royal Parks Charity is saying, please, can you not bring any more of these things? Because they've just got so many of them and obviously they're going to be difficult to dispose of. To such an extent that some people have been saying that the Paddingtons should be donated to a children's hospital charity, for example, so kids can benefit from them when this period of mourning is over. It's a nice idea, Andy. Is it practical? Well, (laughs) as ever, sadly, it is not. Great Ormond Street Hospital have said that the vulnerability of their patients mean that they would be unable to accept any kind of second-hand donations. They say, we are aware of this suggestion, but unfortunately, Gosh treats some of the most seriously ill children in the UK. There are rigorous infection control measures in place, which means the hospital isn't able to accept any second-hand toys, including any of these toys or teddy bears that are being left in memory of the Queen. So sadly, those are out. What I don't want to, know, what I don't know is what's going to happen with all the marmalade sandwiches that are being left. I can't really get my head around why people are doing that. But. I am. Um, I can see why people are doing it because did I mention I had a little cry? You did. But also. It's not as if London's parks are not already got a bit of a rodent problem, a bit of a kind of you sit you sit down and you realise that sort of you're surrounded by birds who are pecking at the leftover food. I, I don't think a sort of an old storage pile of um, marmalade sandwiches is going to make that situation any better. No, so Paddington Bear might not be going to children's hospices, but Roland Rat is having a whale of a time <laughs> eating up all the used marmalade sandwiches. Roland Rat has not been on our television since about <laughs> 1987. And my dad, I mentioned my dad last week on the podcast. He's got a real he starring did. role. Uh, my dad, it was one of the few things, he didn't have many rules, but he would not allow us to watch Roland Rat on the television because he thought it was just the most kind of horrendous thing he'd ever seen. He did approve of Paddington books. I had lots of the Michael Bond books growing up. Is he too anarchic? Um, I think it was just that it was considered to be sort of the absolute sort of base level of humour for a child. <laughs> Didn't Roland Rat just run around going and making this sort of terrible cackling noise and that was the whole act? He was mischievous, I think, it's fair to say. Uh-huh. Anyway, let's not get stuck into Roland Rat. What have you got for us this week, Russell? Um, are you a keen... We're moving right away from the Queen now. I should yeah. make sure everyone knows that now. Are you a keen pub girl, Andy? Do you, you like have a drink? Not really. Okay. <laughs> well, um, imagine someone who loves pubs as much as you don't really care about pubs. <laughs> Polar end of the of the spectrum. Um, I was reading today about a gentleman who is hoping to raise cash for charity, and he's going to do this by breaking the record for the most pub visits in a single day. Oh. Nathan Crimp, for that is his name, wants to get a drink at 75 different pubs in a 12-hour period along the South Coast, and he'll be trying this later this month. He's going to be joined by some of his mates, because frankly, who doesn't want to go to the pub and have their mates with them? (laughs) But also with somebody who the Brighton Argus, who first reported this, called an independent adjudicator to make sure, presumably, that he really does set foot in every single one of these pubs and have a drink while he's there so that he gets recognised officially. So wait a minute, he's got to go to 75 different pubs in 12 hours. Yep. So what's that, about six pubs an hour? Yeah. He's got about 10 minutes. One every 10 minutes, yeah. And also, presumably, he has to move move between the two. It's possible that the logistics are going to be more entertaining than watching him (laughs) trying to get his drink down him. Is he going to need a sleigh faster than Santa's (laughs) in order to get between these places to actually complete this? Well, so the South Coast, this is all sort of down between sort of Brighton and Worthing Way. So it is a pretty straight line if you head down down the waterfront there. So maybe that's it. 
Um, Mr. Crimp22 uh, told his local paper, I suppose my training has been the last four years of drinking most weekends. So it's <laughs> well, possible that, is... that he's used to running down the south coast. <laughs> that is commitment. I mean, this could be the most legendary of pub crawls that's ever taken place, couldn't it? Is he going to be having an alcoholic drink at every location? So he made it clear that he does not imagine he's going to have 75 different drinks, different <laughs> boozy drinks, no. Um, although he did say, bearing in mind that he's starting at midday, he did say he expected to have some booze at the first few and then he'd ease off. Right. So he's going to kind of loosen himself into the process, as are his friends who are with him, I suppose. Yeah, and he hopes to finish at midnight at uh, the Revolution Bar in Brighton. Right. Um, I'm not so much worried about the impact of the booze. I am worried about his bladder. Because that's another logistical question if you're doing that. (laughs) Yeah, and he's only got 10 minutes to drink, travel, and potentially pee as well. Exactly. Um, And you've seen the state of some pub toilets. That could be the thing that kind of finally does him. Anyway, we're treating it lightly, but there could be some serious money raised for the Dogs Trust. That's the charity this is being uh, done in aid of. And it is in memory of Nathan Crimp's beloved dog, Cara. Um, I have been banned from talking too much about dogs on this podcast, but I got one last <laughs> reference just to say, in memory of Cara, best of luck. I hope it goes all right, Nathan. We will be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Andy Ricketts. And I'm Russell Hargrave. Thank you to our guests, Sir Stuart Etherington, and of course our producer, Aidan Lyons, at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. Bye.